Well, this morning, we come to the end of Leviticus, believe it or not. Uh, we've gone through the whole, uh, we'll finish going through the whole 27 chapters uh, in just a few weeks. It's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour. And uh, I wonder this morning, what will you be taking away with you from the book of Leviticus? Um, for those who have not been around or, or are visiting this morning, we looked at the beginning with five sacrifices God gave to the Israelites, each subtly different from the others, but all of them pointing us uh, to Jesus. Then we looked at the rules for the priests, that they were given about sacrifices, and we were reminded that a sacrifice is not uh, enough by itself. Actually, we need a priest, which again pointed us to Jesus. Then we looked at what makes something clean or unclean, and we praise God because we can now eat bacon if we choose to. And uh, we looked at the Day of Atonement, the high day uh, in the, the year when sacrifice was, was made for atonement, again pointing us to Jesus' atonement on the cross. We looked at some wacky rules, if you remember that acronym, wacky to help us understand them, wacky rules that uh, people were to obey, pointing us to the difference that Jesus has made uh, to the law. And then last week, we looked at the rules that ensured that the priests fit that picture of the Eden-like tabernacle pointing us to the new Adam, Christ. And this week, as I say, we reach the end of the book. Five chapters that form the bottom of our mountain. If you remember, we we saw that mountain that went up to the Day of Atonement, and then it sort of came down the other side. Well, now we've reached the bottom of the mountain, and we're to echo the sacrifices from week one. We're sort of supposed to see the parallels here. If they were the what, the sacrifices, our passage here in Leviticus focuses on the when. Uh, Not in the chapter that we read, but in the chapters around it, if you sort of briefly glance down, chapters 23, you see all the different festivals there. Chapter 25, you see the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. You see that most of this is to do with sacred time, festivals and Sabbaths. But again, we meet our perennial problem. We don't do these anymore, do we? We don't have a, a feast of booths or a feast of weeks or a feast of trumpets. But actually, when I went to university, there was a, a church, a large church in town, that actually did do these festivals. Um, so students would arrive in, in October, and it would be the Feast of Booths, uh, and then have little tents out in the, in the church, and you, know, you have to get your palm leaves out. Well, is this what this chapter is saying? Is this something that we've got wrong? Should we be celebrating uh, these festivals with tents and trumpets and all sorts of things? And if that's not what it's saying then what is it here for? Well, the key to this section, as with most of Leviticus, is getting your head around the structure. So we start with, it's probably my longest title of the series, God's Holy Sabbaths and Redemption Double-Decker Sandwich, chapters 23, 25, and 27. What I mean by this is there's a structure that sort of forms a a double-decker sandwich, um, or a big mac, if you like. So you've got your bit of bread, you've got your filling, you've got your bit of bread, you've got your filling, you've got your bit of bread. This is the wrong way round for a sandwich. Imagine the sandwich is sort of laid out that way. But this is basically what we've got in our chapter here. You've got your sort of bread with the Holy Sabbaths, bread with the Sabbaths and redemption, and then redemption at the end. And the bits of filling, the bits it's trying to point out, are actually the bits in the middle. So 24 that we had read out, and 26, which we're going to uh, read in a bit. But to start with, we're going to look at the bread, if you like, round the filling. Uh, the bit that sort of forms uh, around it. First of all, in chapters twenty, in chapters twenty-three, we get weekly and annual sabbaths. 
Now, this is here to regulate the times of the sacrifices that were shown to us right back at the beginning. When were people to bring them? When were they to sort of gather together uh, around the tabernacle? Now, there are seven Sabbaths overall in that chapter. Uh, The weekly Sabbath, you get three spring festivals, the Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, which was at the start of the grain harvest, and then the Feast of Weeks, which was at the end of the grain harvest. Then you get three autumn festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. Now, if you've been following Leviticus, you might be wondering, well, if there's seven, which one's at the top? Which one's at the peak? Well, that's actually the Feast of Weeks, modern-day Pentecost. That seems to be the sort of top one there in, in this section. And originally, I was going to spend quite a lot of time on the meaning and makeup and lots of time on this chapter. You know, what does it work out with the, the, the different sort of festivals and how they work? Except if you glance down our passage, our passage doesn't really do that. Most of the info that I'd have to have given you would have come from outside our passage. So it doesn't really seem to be the point. This isn't a chapter to explain what these festivals are all about. It's just a chapter to explain what sacrifice is on what day. And then also to remind you that these ones are to be Sabbaths, days of rest. So it's there really just to to sort of point out, to show you the when of the what from the beginning. When do you do these sacrifices? If you want to look those things up, you can Google them. Uh, and, and it's as, it, there's some really interesting stuff. But uh, we don't have time to do it this morning. But it's not just the uh, people who are to have Sabbaths. If you turn over to chapter 25, you'll notice that the land was to have Sabbaths too. We meet here the Sabbath years. <coughs> there's a seven-year cycle uh, in that section that's headed the Sabbath year of rest for the land. One year out of seven was to be a time when you didn't harvest any crops. The land itself was to rest. Then also we're given the year of jubilee in the second half from verse 8 onwards. The year of jubilee was a special year and it happened once every 50 years. It was sort of a year when the, the land hit a reset button. So all the Israelite slaves would be freed that year. All land purchased would return to its original owner. So if you bought land in Israel that was outside the cities, at the year of Jubilee, you'd have to give it back to the person that you bought it from. So really, you only ever rented the land, really, from somebody else. And the land would go back to its original settings, if you like. The only exception was in cities. If you bought a house in a city, you could keep that beyond the year of Jubilee if it was a walled city. But it was all to do then with the freeing of slaves and the redemption of property... Which is exactly what our passage goes on to talk about. That's the second half of chapter 25. It's all about the redemption of property. How to look after people who were poor and might want to sell themselves into slavery. And then all this is picked up in chapter 27. So if you turn over to chapter 27, it says laws about vows, but it's to do with dedication of of people selling different things for vows. And it's about redemption of those things. Commentators through the ages have struggled with chapter 27, as actually chapter 26 forms a brilliant conclusion, really, to the letter. Um, Chapter 27 could almost seem like an unwanted encore, you know, when you think that they think it's all over and it really isn't, or that extra point in the sermon that you weren't expecting. We've all been there, haven't we? I'm sure I've done it myself. You know, you think it's over, and it's on our final point. Chapter 27 can feel a little bit like that. But actually, it's just picking up where chapter 25 left over. 
And the effect of all this is to give us that, that picture there of a sort of double-decker sandwich. The, um, the, the sort of bread around two fillings, or the, the bread around two burgers in a Big Mac, except for the filling here is a bit more wholesome probably than what you get in a Big Mac. But really it's there to point us to what's in the middle. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time on what's uh, in the middle. So our second point this morning is filling number one, God's name and presence. And this is over in chapter uh, 24. Let me just read to you again uh, the first uh, few verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Now, it can seem like a bit of a random passage in the middle of everything else that's to do with sacred time. And it can seem a rather insignificant one. But if you've been following Leviticus so far, this passage should strike you as a little bit strange if you haven't found everything else in Leviticus strange. It doesn't seem to fit the themes of what we've seen really in Leviticus. Because it's not to do with sacrifices or Sabbaths or things like that. It's to do with lamps. The priests are to have a permanently shining lamp in the tabernacle. And it seems a bit like a bolt out of the blue. This doesn't really seem to, it's not even commanded to Aaron, it's just commanded to the people to bring it. It's not really given to the priests. It can seem like a, quite a random command. Followed by another, if you look down at five to nine, you have these arrangements of the bread. And again, it sort of seems a little bit weird. We've not had the bread mentioned before. It's been all about the sacrifices, hasn't it? It's been all about the, um, the animals that are to be killed. Not really part of the sacrificial system, and it sort of stands out a bit again. It's especially weird, because actually the numbers that you're given for the, the bread is 12, isn't it? So do you see there um, in verse 5? You'll take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Now, again, there's been no mention uh, of these in Leviticus. And, and the number 12 stands out like a sore thumb in Leviticus. Because actually the big number in Leviticus, as we've been going through it, is the number 7. So in this section, from 23 to 27, for example, the number 7 is mentioned 29 times. The number 12 is mentioned once here. In fact, in the whole book, it's only mentioned once here. Now, it's clearly symbolic, because the whole of Leviticus points us to symbolic stuff. Seven is symbolic of perfection and completeness. But what's going on here with the number 12? That seems a little bit strange as well. Remember that Leviticus is a highly symbolic book. The lamp here is supposed to symbolise God's life-giving presence. A burning light that's always burning in the temple. And the loaves, if you look at the... I meant to have a diagram for the temple, but I forgot to put it in the slides. But the, if you like, the, uh, the lamp was to be on one side of the room in the tabernacle. And the bread was to be on the other side. And then sort of through the door was the Holy of Holies. But what you get is that the light was meant to shine on the bread. That's why those two are sort of linked together here in this section. And 12 in the Bible symbolises God's people. 
the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. God's presence is to shine forever on his people. That's what's going on here. So it's sort of a symbolic form of the priestly blessing. So Aaron was told in number six, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheet, that he was to have a special blessing for the people. This is what he says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What we've got here by these commandments is a picture of God shining his life-giving presence upon his people. One commentator puts it like this. It portrayed the ideal of Israel basking in the light of the divine presence. Or again, it was a symbolic picture of Israel abiding in the blessed Sabbath day presence of Yahweh. Which might explain a bit why we we get this in the sort of holy time section, the sacred time section. This is a wonderful picture of the wonderful rest Israel was to enter into. Basking in the life-giving presence of God. This is what Israel uh, experienced in part through their history. It's what we experience by faith now after the coming of Christ. And what is one day we will enjoy in glory with Christ. This is a living picture, if you like, of what is to come. The wonderful blessing of the priest put into symbolic form as basking in the life-giving presence of God. And what was that blessing doing? Well, it tells us at the end of that passage in Numbers. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This was about God putting his name on his people, showering the blessings of his presence on them. They were to bear his name and be shined upon by his life-giving presence. So really what this is about is about fellowship with God. God's presence being with them, them bearing his name. It's almost a bit like a wedding ceremony. You know, it it changes a little bit these days, but most brides still take the name of their husband, don't they, at a wedding. But it's more than just a name change, isn't it? It's a closeness, a declaration that you are now one. So close is the husband to his wife that he gives her his very name. And here's the picture that we have here. God loves us so much. He wants to be with us so much. He gives us his name. The book of Revelation talks about Christ giving his name to those who overcome. In other words, Christians, us. But more than that, did you know that if you're a believer this morning, that God's face shines upon you, just like this picture in the tabernacle gives us? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God... In the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's glorious countenance shines upon us. Or Ephesians 5 verse 14. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The light of his glory, the light of God's glory, the light that was symbolized in that, those lamps, shines on us in Christ. And the wonderful picture that we see in the tabernacle is that it never goes out. 
As the night's drawing, and it gets a bit dark, it might be hard to believe with the sun shining through the windows this morning. But as the night's drawing, don't forget that. In thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. That we're straying into next week, aren't we? As we look at the Jesus is the light of the world at the carol services. Don't worry, by the way, we won't be doing Leviticus for the carol services with that. But it's a reminder here of God's relationship with his people. God giving us his name. God giving us his life-giving presence. How do we experience that now as Christians? Well, there's two angles we can take on it, aren't there? We experience it by faith. It's not something that we can see with our eyes, but we grasp it by faith. His word tells us that his presence is with us, that his face is shining upon us. And it's our business to believe it, isn't it? He really is shining his life-giving presence on us in Christ all the time. The second angle we can take is it's by his spirit. God's presence is with us always. We bear just not his name, but God himself inside us. Through his spirit living within us, we have the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at all times. We have his life-giving presence shining inside us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3.6, the spirit gives life. So God has put his name on us. God has given us his spirit shining his life-giving presence into us. And what follows in the passage now makes sense. We're shown the opposite of that relationship with God and its consequences. If the first part was all to do with God's presence shown, then this is to do with God's name being blasphemed. So you see in that second section, uh, the punishment for blasphemy. Let me just read you the first part. Now an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite's woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear. And of course what happens is the people are commanded uh, to stone him. What we're given here is the case of a blasphemer whose mother was an Israelite, but whose father was an Egyptian. I imagine that must have been a, quite a common problem. This is the first generation coming out of Egypt. This son profanes the name of the Lord. He blasphemes. What should happen to him? Well, God makes it clear here that there should be no difference in the treatment between an Is- Egyptian-born child and an Israelite. No difference between an alien and a native-born person. Because what follows is a passage all about God's justice. Justice, he's saying, is justice, whoever you are. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Justice in Israel is to be impartial, not treating some people differently from other people. And that's actually what the eye for eye passage is about. Not showing partiality or prejudice in the law. It's showing sort of perfect justice. The punishment must reflect the crime for everyone, no matter what their background is. Justice is to be exacting, not excessive above what people have done. So, you know, somebody gets pokes your eye, you're not supposed to poke two of their eyes out. Nor is it to be lax, sort of just letting people off. 
What's fascinating here is that in a section on proportionate justice, the punishment for blasphemy is death. Blaspheming God's holy name here is held equivalent to murder or worse. We're not told what he said, but I imagine it wasn't half as insulting as much as what has been said about God through history and certainly in our society. I'm not for a second proposing that we bring back the death penalty for blasphemy. Indeed, in our setting, I don't think it makes sense even to have a law against blasphemy. But it's a reminder that there are two options. You can bear the name of God, or you can blaspheme the name of God. Bearing the name of God leads to life and peace and forgiveness. Blaspheming the name of God leads to death. So really we're being given two options, two paths that we can go down. You can enjoy the light of God's presence, or you can face the pure light of God's justice. And God makes the decision very easy for us. He gives us two stark ways that we can go. And that same stark option is repeated in chapter 26. And that's our last point. Filling number two, God's covenant ultimatum, chapter 26. Again, we're given two stark choices, two paths. If you're into the matrix like I am, the green pill or the red pill. Will they pursue a relationship with God? Or will they go their own way? Will they do what he says? Or will they go it alone? alone? So God reminds them of the lengths that he will go to, to have him, to have them, sorry, as their people. So firstly, we see blessings for obedience. Let me read to you verses 1 to 13. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land or bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from your land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Here are the blessings that God promises to them, the earthly blessings associated with this covenant. Doing all that God had commanded, including keeping all those festivals and Sabbaths that we've just seen. What will God do? He'll give them rain in season, bountiful crops and fruit. Peace in the land. Dangerous animals will be removed. 
Protection will be given for their enemies. They'll defeat their enemies. They'll be fruitful and multiply. They'll be bountiful food. And God himself will dwell among them and walk with them in the land. Sounds incredibly like Eden on earth, doesn't it? The tabernacle blessings spreading to the whole land. Like a wave of cleanness and blessing spreading out from God's presence. This is the Sabbath rest that we've just been talking about. All that they have to do is obey. So this should be it then. Story over. End of the Bible. Let's all go home. Two problems. One, this is clearly not the end of the Bible. In fact, the very next verses are going to explain what happens when they disobey. Second problem, they will inevitably disobey. This is part of the human condition, isn't it? Even though all logic dictates that we should obey, we're rebels to the heart, aren't we? I think about uh, myself as a child with uh, cleaning my teeth. I used to struggle with that as a child. I had, uh, I think it was five teeth pulled out by the dentist. But, you know, brushing your teeth is logical, isn't it? It makes sense. It's not painful. In fact, it avoids pain. Because, uh, you know, you avoid pain at the dentist. My parents even promised me things if I would brush my teeth and, you know, threatened things if I wouldn't. But still, I didn't brush my teeth. There's something in us, isn't there? You could probably think of of things in your own life where that, that works. It's completely logical to do it, to obey. And yet we don't. We're rebels to the heart. So what happens if they disobey? We'll have a look at verse 14. I'll just read part of this. It's quite a long section. Just starting off at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you do not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that will consume your eyes and make your heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, I will discipline you again, sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For the land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And then turning uh, right down to uh, verse uh, 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at you, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. 
Here we see the curses for disobedience, all the opposites of obedience. Heavens like iron, no rain. Disease and death, war in the land. Dangerous animals roaming free and devouring children. Defeat by enemies. Instead of fruitfulness and multiplication, they'll eat the flesh of their children. Probably a reference to siege and famine. Their bread supply will collapse. God himself will walk against them in the land. He will throw them out of the land in exile. And they will be abhorred even by the nations. And it goes on to use the language that they will rot. It's a horrible, appalling image given to the Israelites to induce them to obedience. Look at what could happen if you disobey. And we all know that feeling, don't we? When temptation to sin comes, we know the thoughts that go through our heads, don't we? This will come back to bite me. This will hurt me in the long run. This will not turn out for good. But the daft thing again is that despite all that, we so often give in to temptation. Is there no hope? Well, there's always hope. While we're still living and breathing, there's hope. Have a look at verse 40 to 45. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and they also walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land will be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, um, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. See, the goal of this cursing was never annihilation, but restoration. He wants them to turn back to him. Confess their sin. And that in verse 45, he might be their God again, so to speak. In other words, he's doing this because he wants his people back. It was always about discipline, not about destruction. And that should give us hope. They still live with the consequences of their actions. The land still gets its Sabbaths that they denied them when they broke the rules that we read about in chapter 25. But this was about bringing them back, not sending them away. We read the same in the New Testament, don't we? Hebrews 12, 5-7. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are less without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate sons, their children and not sons. As Christians, it's never about doing us in, it's about bringing us back. So even when times are tough, there is hope. And we have even more reason to hope 
Even with this discipline God brings to the people through the curses, the effect is always in a cycle, isn't it? People turn away, God disciplines. People turn back, cry out for rescue, God rescues. People turn away again. If you don't believe me, read the book of Judges. What we need is someone to deal with this once and for all. Someone who finally, decisively and completely obeys, unlocking Eden for everyone else. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? We have such a one. Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly under the law, completing it, fulfilling it in a way that Israel never did. Not only did he do that, though, he took the curses too. He lived the life of a covenant keeper and he died the death of a covenant breaker, ending the cycle forever, unlocking the blessings of the future Eden for all those who trust in him. So what do we need to do if we want to access to the new Eden? Well, here's where the original application, uh, this application, sorry, looks radically different from the original. It's not to do with obeying the covenant commands. It's to do with trusting in the covenant keeper. Being united to him by faith in his death on the cross. As that sacrifice that Leviticus has been pointing us to all along. But it's not all about getting into the new Eden when you die. That's not what Leviticus is about, and it's not what Christianity is about either. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on a plate while you wait. Or a nice juicy nut roast if you're a vegetarian this morning. And that's the challenge that I'm taking away from Leviticus. We're made for fellowship with God, not just a place in heaven. We were made to enjoy a living relationship with him, enjoy his life-giving presence, not just use him as a means to an end, however wonderful that end might be. A relationship with Jesus is what the end is, isn't it? Not mediated through a priest, he is our priest. So we can know him today because of what he's done. We can enjoy a relationship with him today, now, not just when we die. Do you know him? If you know him, how's that relationship with God going? Leviticus brings us hope of a growing relationship with God. Not through our obedience, but through Jesus' perfect sacrifice. So let's pray this morning that we would learn the lessons of Leviticus and enjoy that relationship with God that we have through Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that he fulfills all that we have been talking about, Father. Thank you that he is the ultimate sacrifice. Father, thank you that he is the way that we experience your life-giving presence through your Spirit. Father, help us to grow in our relationship with you. Father, we don't just want to think of this as something that guarantees us something when we die. Father, we want to know you now. We want to have a relationship with you now. Father, help that to grow in our lives. Father, we are conscious that it, for none of us it's what, uh, in the place that we want it to be. Father, help us to grow in our love of you, our knowledge of you. And Father, help us to experience that life-giving presence. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.